Hello and welcome to Wind Your Neck In, and I am your host, Niall Annan. We wrap up our three episode sponsorship in style with Van Velds and Smith, or VVS for short. Once again, last week we were able to give away a free designer VVS belt, and this week we will do so again, so keep an eye on social media for the giveaway post. VVS has been a long term friend of the show, and we'd like to say a huge thanks to them for their support. If you're not, make sure you follow them on Instagram for some very exciting news and their newest boots being released. And if, like me, you suffer from FOMO, here is what you need to do. Head over to VVS's website at www.vvsleather.co.uk and subscribe to become a member and you will be sent a code which allows you to avail of a free belt when you buy any of their boots and that is including their newest boots being released very very soon. This is a no-brainer for anyone listening to this. All you have to do is head to the website and subscribe. So without further ado, here is episode 15 with Joe Schmidt. We hope you guys enjoy and if you do, leave us a review or get in touch via social media. Cheers. Hello and welcome to Wind Your Neck In and a pleasure and a privilege for me to welcome the man who guided Leinster for three years when they won multiple European Cups and a Pro 12 to go along with it, only to jump into the Irish rugby hot seat for six years afterwards where he helped them win three Six Nations and a Grand Slam. It's my pleasure to welcome World Rugby Coach of the Year for 2018 season, Joe Smith. Joe, thank you so much for jumping on today. We really appreciate your time. No problem, Niall. Uh, I've, uh, I've had a little bit of time in recent months, unfortunately, like a lot of people, but um, I have started making more and more use of it, I've got to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we were just talking off there that Dublin's starting to get moving again, the whole of Ireland's starting to get moving again. But how do you reflect quickly on that quarantine self-isolation time? And now that it's starting to get moving, I imagine you're getting pretty busy. Yeah, I think um, it was a great time for me, to be honest, because part of why I finished with rugby was to spend more time with the family. And yet, during the last few months, I was supposed to be in Hong Kong, Dubai, Lisbon. Um, I'm supposed to be in Stockholm this week. I was supposed to be in Madrid two weeks ago. We had a classic All Blacks game against Spain, all set up. That sold 45,000 tickets. Big game in, in, in Madrid. So... While I was disappointed to miss some of those things, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to to be at home and spend time with family and and reconnect because it hasn't been hasn't been something I've had the chance to do on a on a long term basis for for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. I think the sacrifices that you make as a coach are something I'm looking forward to delving into later. And I suppose we'll just get into it. And and we did, we discussed it earlier, and we're going to be quite specific about some of the areas that we discuss. And the first one off off the back of the previous guest that we've had in this kind of elite level coaches is this theme of school teaching translate transitioning into coaching. And it's something that I'm I'm from a family of teachers, so it's quite interesting for me. But I was wondering if you could delve into your experiences of how that enabled you to become a better coach, maybe, or allowed you to have a head start on some of the principles that, of coaching. Um, I, I think one of the things uh, there's a lot of Kiwis who, who obviously there's Stuart Lancaster, um, Eddie Jones. They're not Kiwis, but they're good examples of teachers who've gone into coaching really successfully. Uh, but for myself, there was guys like Graham Henry, Dave Rennie. Um, Warren Gatland, uh, Pat Lamb, all, all teachers, Tom Coventry, who, who was at London Irish there. So I guess for us, one of the things is that when I first went into teaching, if you were playing first-class rugby, as all, all of us were at that time, because a lot of those guys, I, I played with Pat and, and, and Gats and, and against them as well, um, <laughs> is that uh, you could get uh, full salary while 
having time off to play the game because they wanted young men going into teaching. It was kind of a, a, um, I suppose, a bonus for us that we could get out and we could we could still play rugby, still get our our salary, even for the days off that we had while we were teaching because it it was uh, a dispensation for any first class sport in New Zealand. So that that was part of the attraction, I guess, but. Really, teaching is about being prepared, um, having a progression, and uh, and communication. And I, I think coaching, you know, is very very similar. Um, I think Dave Rennie, Rennie said at one stage, um, teaching, coaching, it's the same thing, just bigger people, um, <laughs> and, and some of them are very big. So uh, yeah, it, it, they're certainly similar. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the, the transferable skills are being made more evident by, for me from some of the people I'm speaking to. And it's the kind of uh, the how of the coaching is something that we've focused on massively with Stuart. And then we covered a lot of the why, the vision statement stuff with, with Pat. And throughout this, if there's any of that that kind of fits in with your coaching philosophy and stuff, I'd love to hear some of that. But, but first, you know, those early years in coaching, I suppose when you're forming, when you finished as a player and, and a successful player you were those early years playing um, in New Zealand or, or sorry coaching in New Zealand with the Bay of Plenty and Blues as an assistant coach do you remember at that age as a young coach some relatable to where I am now still a couple of years left playing hopefully but as, as, a, as a young yeah. coach making that that transfer into coaching are there some coaches that stand out for people that you worked with who taught you and you learned off and you were a sponge around them? And in tandem with that, whenever you were forming your own opinions of what the game looked like to you? Yeah, there are. There are some, some people who, who influenced me in different ways. Ian Cahoon was always so prepared. Uh, he, he was a guy, he was a school teacher. He was very successful coaching secondary school players. So when he coached our, clubs, our club side, he, he was very successful. Um, playing for one or two in the in the um, kind of NPC, we had a guy Garth Talin at one stage. He was the the best man ever, and he was very inclusive. You know, our wives and girlfriends were welcomed. Before it became popular for that to be the case, it used to be a very much an old boys sort of situation. He was an ex hooker, skill wise, tactically. I, I didn't learn anything off him, but managing people and the enthusiasm he brought to every training. And to all the people in the team was brilliant. And so I learned a lot off him about managing people in a rugby environment. And then probably Mark Donaldson is, is, is almost the antithesis. I, I learned a lot about skills and angles of running and strategy from, from Bullet. But he was very old school, uh, Mark Donaldson, uh, you know, about making sure that it was, it was very much... Uh, kind of a, a team-only environment post-game and things like that. So, And, and he would very uh, aggressively hold people accountable, and you know, whereas Garth had a real balance to him. So, but Mark Donaldson's understanding of the game was, was second to none at the time, I felt. And so you learn different things from different coaches, and I'm sure you have too, Niall, as, as you go through. And so then when you got to apply some of that knowledge coaching secondary school players and that's that's where I started I snapped my Achilles tendon a couple of times when I was about 25 and so I was an English teacher that the whole thing was very very busy we just had our first child as well a daughter and so 
I then started coaching more as an interim measure. I planned to go back playing, but then I never really got back to it. I, I mm. stayed in coaching and we made a couple of national finals where we hadn't ever made the top four before. And then, you know, I fell into it accidentally. Even when it started, I, I wasn't keen to, to be a rugby coach per se because I started teaching and I was playing provincial rugby and club rugby and I didn't want to be coaching it as well. I felt uh, it'd be overkill, but the principal that I was working for, he was a very good player himself, played for Auckland, uh, played in the uh, New Zealand University side that beat the, the touring Lions. Um, so he had a real rugby pedigree. When I volunteered to coach basketball, he, uh, he, he said, um, yeah, look, that's brilliant. That's on Friday nights. It won't, coach, it won't affect your rugby coaching on Saturday morning. <laughs> so I ended up with two jobs, effectively. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I could have done without that. But uh, progressing from there, I, I got to enjoy it. Uh, I got to enjoy the, the increased strategy. Uh, I, would, I was teaching media studies in English in the, in the school, so I would take in the, the video from the from the day's game with the with the senior cup team or first 15 as they're called in New Zealand. I put it in, I'd pull out three or four minutes of highlights or lowlights and then we'd meet on a, on a Monday morning um, in uh, in the interval period or a Monday lunchtime and go through a bit of that and I'd, I'd set the training up for the, for the week and say, look, you know, this is what we're going to do on Tuesday, this is what we're going to do on Thursday. So having that ability to plan, I think, is, is one of the strengths of being a teacher. And then there was always a progression and there was always a clarity for the players about, okay, well, this week we want to get better at this. And, and it, it built from there, really. I, I got a phone call, a bizarre phone call one night. Would I be involved in New Zealand schoolboys coaching? And so I did that. And then the Bay of Plenty CEO came into my office one day and I thought he wanted to talk about Tanare Latima, who was this freakishly good kid who was yeah. in the New Zealand Sevens team as a 17-year-old. But he wanted to talk to me about would I, would I coach the, the Bay of Plenty back line. And then I, I went in and I did that and, and did the attack, really. And then the second year, we, we got fifth. We'd, they'd finished last three years in a row. We, we managed to get fifth and beat a few big teams like Auckland. That was the first time in 23 years. And their coaching staff were Graham Henry, uh, Grant Fox, the legendary uh, yeah. out half, and, and Wayne Pivak. I, I was always looking to talk to them after games to get feedback on what we'd done or how they were doing what they were doing. And so I suppose having a growth mindset is really important, as well as having some skills initially, because uh, you're always looking to learn yourself. And you know, even in these discussions, Niall, I'll always pick up something, you know, that a previous coach has said to you, or you as a current player uh, perceive. And I'll, I'll kind of meld that into what I already know about myself or, or my philosophy or, or coaching in general and, and build it in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that f- asking for feedback is something we touched on previously and it's really important. And it's, But it takes you to be very self-aware to be able to do that, doesn't it? Because sometimes feedback comes in different forms and I suppose you better than anyone have at times have had to give feedback to players that maybe isn't comfortable or easy to give. But at the same time, you have to be open enough to go and ask other people for feedback in the constant pursuit of growing your ability as a coach or your ability as a man manager. And I think it seems like, Joe, you constantly evolving that coaching philosophy. Is that fair to say? You know, you kind of start off with a plan or an idea and then you speak to people or you play a certain way or something doesn't work and then you have to almost evolve your coaching philosophy and your coaching strategies. 
absolutely, because it depends on the personnel you've got. Depends on how they have played in the past and how they want to play in the future. And you know how they've played in the past is, is certainly going to affect in the short term how they're going to play in the short-term future because they're not suddenly going to be able to metamorphosize themselves into different players, either physically or, or skill-related or even in their understanding and anticipation in the game because that's one of the things that's the hardest to coach, I think, is, is that anticipation to run a line of support off a player um, and then to realign quickly because they've gone to ground and you've got to make sure that your entry is correct to, to look after them on the ground. All, all those elements, you're, you're always trying to develop players. And one, one of the things that I do believe is that some players learn the game um, and they have a knowledge of the game. Other players understand the game. But some players are intuitive about the game. They, they, they have a deeper understanding. They have an instinctive ability to do the right thing at the right time. You know, I, I suppose having had the luxury of working with guys like Trico, um, mm. Issa Nathewa is a great example. Issa was never the fastest. He was never the strongest. He was never the most skillful. But he was really good in all three of those areas. But where he just beat other players is his consistency to play at 8 out of 10 at least every game. You know, there were... There were times where you would take Issa across the Newport. It was, you know, horizontal hail, um, <laughs> knee deep in mud. And he would give you eight out of ten, just the same as he would in a, in a Heineken Cup final, semi-final, yeah. whatever. Uh, and, and that was one of the real strengths of a player like him. You knew what you were going to get. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of ties in nicely with the next question, Joe. I think the the, the coaching philosophy is is interesting, and but it's the ability for you to work one-on-one with these people uh, or, or to get your message to them. And one of the big fundamentals of this teaching concept that I'm kind of coming to terms with or, or learning from, and it's been kind of happening my whole career, but I didn't even know it was there in the background. It's how you get your message as a coach to people from different cultures, different nationalities, different religions, different, it doesn't matter. Everybody has a different way of learning and a different way of um, taking information on board. So for information, as, as if you go back to the years as the Leinster head coach, how do you get your message to a big group so that Ethan Asewa gets it because he's probably going to get it quite quickly uh, as opposed to someone else who's maybe a younger player breaking through. That differentiation of what getting your message across seems like it's hugely important. Yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important. I can't remember who said it. Might have, might have been Samuel Emerson, but he said that the biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. And sometimes you'll say, well, I told you this, hmm. but they didn't understand it. So... Whose fault is it? it? As a coach, you've got to take the responsibility of making sure that players truly understand the message. And there are multiple ways of doing that. And the, the first thing I found is that um, it doesn't have to be you. You know, I, I would have used Issa. I would have used Dricko, Johnny, uh, Shane Jennings, those guys, Jamie Heslip, those guys who understand the game really well, who pick things up quickly. I'd use them to help other players to make sure they understood what they needed to do in, in any given circumstance. And so uh, Owen Redden was really good like that. And, and so was Isaac Boss. So, th- so those guys on the hub tend to be good at understanding other people's roles as well as their own so that you know they can, they can help the players alongside them. And you get a little, little bit more alignment like that. You get a, a collective buy-in like that. 
And uh, it's impossible for one person to be giving the message all the time. And then during the game, to reassess, realign, maybe adapt a little bit, those are the guys that you're relying on to do all that because you know, you're a long way away from the players during a half of rugby. And while you can give a message, you talk about self-awareness. One of the things I did as a young coach when I was coaching super rugby is I got the high performance manager, Mike Chu, to come and sit in the box uh, during a game uh, when I was coaching. And I remember I told a, a winger, Viliami Wakazadudua, to uh, try to stay a bit narrow on the short side defensively because otherwise if he stands too wide, he gives two options to, to the attack. I, I got a message out to him and he didn't look like he understood. And then the message again and the scrum collapsed and the reset and I got the message again. And afterwards, uh, Mike Chu said to me, do you think you added value there or did you distract them? And I said, yeah. After the first time, because... Uh, he obviously didn't understand the message. Mm. Should have just left him and relied on his natural physical ability because he was freakishly good uh, <laughs> to be able to adjust and defend the short side anyway. Uh, they went the open side. It never became an issue, but I did go back through that clip with uh, Viliami during the week so that we try to solve the problem going forward. But, but in that moment in time, um, being more self-aware as a coach, that communication is, is sometimes left till afterwards because it doesn't become communication. It becomes clutter. It becomes a distraction. So communication is, is something that where a message is transferred. There was no message transferred, <laughs> only, uh, only a distraction. Okay, so the, the self-awareness is something that we're going to continue with because I think in a rugby environment, as a player, coach, physio, trainer, it doesn't matter what capacity you're in, it's something I think is really important personally. And it, it allows you the ability to review your own performance. And in your case, we're talking as a coach. So in order for you to drive standards, you've had to have had the ability to review your own performance. And some of the things I know um, they do in America is they record the meetings of where the coach is given a message. So that allows you to refer. And this will all be stuff that you're really used to with like the teaching and stuff, but, and as the coaching, but have you ever used techniques like that where you're, where you're reviewing your ability to get a message to the group or do you allow the players to give that feedback to you so you can constantly try and improve your performance, which is message giving and the, the conciseness of what you're trying to say? Yeah, I use the coaching staff. Uh, you know, we had a very experienced coaching staff. Simon Easterby was head coach at the Scarlets for three years. Andy Farrell, huge coaching experience. Richie Murphy, I worked with for, for 10 years. And Greg Fink, I worked with for 10 years. So those guys, we would often uh, critique each other mm. um, in how we presented. So if Simon was presenting on the line out or, or Fiki was presenting on scrum or I was presenting on attack or, um, or, or kick off receive or whatever, um, same, same with Faz with the, with the defence, we'd give feedback to each other. And, and it, was, it was great because it was, there was a nice security with it being within the group, but sometimes outside the group. Uh, I, I used Ender McNulty often and I would get Ender to watch players watch the players and pick up signals from them and give me feedback about who, who appeared to be totally engaged and, and who appeared to, to be phasing out, you know. And 
so you, so you you try to balance up, maybe pick someone up and make sure they have got the messages. Uh, again, we'd have a play sheet, and one of the things about the play sheet, it would only ever be one sheet. I know teams have playbooks, so we never had a playbook in uh, Leinster or Ireland because if you didn't know it, you weren't going to learn it from having it written on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so each week we'd say, look, these are the lineouts, these are the plays that we're going to use. So we, we would have a, a play sheet for the week. I think in the entire time that I coached Issa Nathewa at Leinster, he never once took a play sheet, but he always knew what was going on. And I never once tried to make him take a play sheet because he, he was all over it. You know, Johnny would take the play sheet and he'd reorganise it and I'd see drawings on his and things. And uh, Johnny often would draw up our, our plays on the, um, on the sort of flip chart for other players so that, you know, he knew them inside out and he could, he could help direct other players. And you would get guys like Jamie Heaslip making sure that the back row knew what each other were meant to be doing. And uh, the one thing I really enjoyed about the Lencher environment is, is how I felt you could really be progressive, that you had enough time and enough opportunity to work with individuals. The national team is a match scramble. You get them a week before you play a test match and then you've got to be organised. So what you become is an organiser more than a, more than a coach who, who develops players. So you try to still develop players as best you can in those very small windows. So you know, I always found that really frustrating. Yeah, I think it's something I'm, I'm very interested to get to, but I'd like to go back one step before that, Joe, if possible, because your transition from working in... Um, your, your transition from working in France with Vern Cotter at Clermont as an assistant coach and before that having been at the Blues as an assistant coach then you moved to that Leinster job as a head coach for the officially the first time in a professional environment is that fair? Yeah Yeah. so I, I think it, it'd be interesting to know because it's I don't know but the perception is and you hear people saying it that it's easier and more comfortable probably maybe is a better word to use to be an assistant coach because you're not the guy whose head's on on the block so to speak can you reflect on that experience of moving and learning through that assistant coach role and then becoming the man at Leinster as the head coach yeah i i didn't want to do it no i said uh i said no twice uh to Leinster and at one stage um i actually emailed Mick Dawson, but that organised for me and my wife Kelly to, to come over and and to meet a few of the players and to have a bit of a look at maybe houses or schools and things. And, and Mick Dawson, smart man that he is, uh, <laughs> he, he said, look, we've got these flights you, you booked over for the weekend. Why don't you come over for the weekend anyway? So we came over. I met some of the players who really impressed me. And I remember a conversation I had uh, with Leo and Johnny at the time and spoke to Trico. And I, I, I didn't know if I could do the job even. I was a strategist. Uh, I sat in behind helping players maximise uh, their skills, grow their understanding, put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together so that it made the pictures that we wanted on the pitch. But, but I didn't know if I, could, um, if I could get all the puzzle pieces to, to combine 
um, and and to do all the other aspects of being a head coach. So I, I was hesitant, and a, a big part of the encouragement came from my wife Kelly. When you know, I think she had more confidence in my ability <laughs> than I did. But um, I I remember I said to them, "You know what? What do you expect from me? Because I, I've never I've never run a big team before, and um, I, I'm I'm not sure what what you you think." Uh, you need from me and they said look we've seen how Claremont play uh, we love the way that they play with the width they do and, and the variations uh, we'd like to be able to play like that and I said well look I can I can try to help you with that but I said that that's what you want to do but what happens if other people you know in, in the squad don't want to do that Johnny piped up and said don't worry about that we'll take care of that mm. and, and honestly Nile they did to a large degree the driving force wasn't me. The driving force was was the key players, the hub that the wheel turned on. I, I maybe got the GPS in my hands, but I certainly wasn't at the steering wheel. Um, there were times where, you know, I, I, inevitably you take the wheel and, and players need to hear things. And, um, you know, I, I'll never forget hearing stories about these Monday meetings. Um, I'd love for you to have been in one, Noel, because you would, you would have seen that they were that they were direct sometimes and honest, but they were never, I don't believe, scathing. Um, mm. The one thing that John O'Gibbs and the boys in Olstead that you'd know would, would maybe talk a little bit about John he was unforgiving of effort errors. You could make a skill or a, or a decision-making error because we don't get it right all the time. But you, if you didn't bother your backside to get off the ground or you dropped out of the line because you felt a little bit tight, they were the unforgivables. So, you know, there were times where the unforgivables were, were probably magnified on the screen and, and people were held to account. But they were held to account by their own guidelines by their own accountable standards I, I was just one of the guardians of the standards that they set for themselves and then they also you know guys like Drico he, he, he was demanding of himself and others Johnny demanding of himself and others Jamie and, and other guys that you wouldn't probably put right up there but Redza and Bossy would drive people around uh, Shane Jennings um, you know, Kev McLaughlin in a quiet, a quieter way. Sean O'Brien was intolerant of people not getting things right, um, and it, it was the same further out in the back line as well. We, we had some really good, good players. Issa was a very positive influence, but he he demanded things from players by the by the you know by the the actions he delivered really, which is the same as Brad Thorne when he came in. Brad Thorne was a, an incredible influence, but, but not because he said a lot. And it, I think people talk about communication and think it's about talking. Communication should be about listening and it should be about watching because I, I think body language is an incredibly strong communication tool. And Brad's ability to model the right behaviours and the right preparation it spoke volumes, you know. He, he didn't need to say a lot more. 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's fascinating um, that you have that insight with some of those guys and the culture in which, and uh, I, I, I'm hesitant to use the word culture because it's banded around left, right and centre. But in, in this case, I think it's fair that the culture and the environment that, you ha- that was created at Leinster through those senior players and yourself facilitating se- seemed like it was one where people were allowed to just get better, but the non-negotiables were the ones that took no talent, which is something that Pat spoke about previously in the podcast. And I just like to touch on now, I suppose, going from that day-to-day um, basis where you are working on these players and you're able to see, you know, small incremental growths in their performance on a weekly basis on things that you've helped them with or things that you've, you know, you might be saying to someone, you know, I need to see more from you and your breakdown in terms of very specifics of whether you're dropping your height or whatever it is. And you can see that improvement on a weekly basis. It's quite gratifying as a coach. I suppose that is what coaching, for me in my infancy, it seems like coaching is, is it putting in place things from an expertise point of view where you can improve people, right? You then transfer that to being the head of the Irish uh, rugby team, which you had huge success in. But from a coaching point of view, Joe, did you find it, and I know you alluded to it earlier, but did you find it frustrating that you couldn't have as much time with these people? Or did you allow yourself maybe to try and touch base with them outside of the coaching windows? I think you could. There are some of them that I would inevitably talk to. Uh, Paul O'Connell a lot in the first two years because he was captain. Rory Best for four years, you know, I'd talk to Rory. Uh, I'd get a call from Rory. He'd be thinking about, what about if we tried this or what about... Johnny, obviously, um, I've had a long relationship with Johnny. I've had huge, huge respect for his understanding of the game hmm. and his commitment to being better um, in the game at all times. Um, and and it, you would get to know other guys as well. And, and it's probably unfair that I, I leave some guys out. Yeah. But in, inevitably, um, some guys will get left out. But uh, other guys like um, Robbie Henschel grew into the game incredibly well. Um, he, he, he sat behind Drico for, for that first year with my um, involvement with the, the Irish team, the first Six Nations. Robbie, he, he, he was tucked behind Drico, never got a look in, but the whole time uh, Drico was passing on knowledge. You know, he, he was helping to form Robbie into, um, help him form into the player he became. So that peer coaching and facilitating the opportunity for that to take place. That, that's, that's, I think that's a really important part of coaching, particularly at international level, because you don't have that time, as I said. And that, while that's a frustration, you also want to make sure that you give the provincial coaches a, a fair whack of time. So I don't want to be getting in Stu Lancaster's way, um, chatting to, to um, I don't know, Jordan Lama about, you know, growing this part of his game or, or Gary Ringrose or James Ryan, I might touch base with them occasionally. I might even drop them a text and say, hey, really impressed with that game today and try to pick two really good things that they did in the game because everyone needs confidence and, and, and needs to stay on top of their game. So even when we gave feed, feedback to players at the end of a, a particular tournament or a tour that we took, we would try to give you know, clips or feedback on two real positives uh, that we want them to keep delivering and then maybe pick one or two things that we want them to keep building on so that we, we, we try to start with the positive as often as we could because we know that that player needs to be staying confident and, and they need to understand that if you don't practice what you're good at, you don't stay good at it. 
And a lot of people, they say, oh, look, you need to start focusing on being really good at this. And they pick the weaknesses of for the player. And then the player starts to lose their confidence because the weaknesses are maybe improving a little bit, but the things they're really good at start to get a little bit less effective. Um, and then you don't quite have the same player because any player needs to have their confidence to be at their best. Um, and I, I certainly feel that with the Irish because I, I felt that they undersold themselves. We lost in 2013 to the All Blacks, not because we hadn't played as well as they did, because f- for some of that game, I, I felt we really outplayed them. But at the end of the game, we, we panicked. We did uh, some of the actions that we delivered were almost panicked or we allowed fatigue to be involved where if we'd been able to stay confident and stay present in the moment, I I felt we could have won that game. So that was the third game in for me. And and that was a realisation for me that, wow, I need to make sure that these guys, we keep our confidence um, and that we keep our belief. Because I think belief runs deeper than confidence. Belief is a a really strong-rooted sense of your own ability. To, to overcome really good teams, really tough moments, and stay present in those moments to keep delivering what the team needs from you. I think it's fascinating, and I think it's also this could come across as the most obvious question um, that you've ever heard. But that concept of peer coaching is something I'm quite interested in. Being in a professional environment, I'm curious to know, as a coach, as a top class coach, how do you facilitate that happening in a genuine and positive way? Because inevitably, Joe, when you're deciding who's playing, there's going to be obstacles that these players need to be bigger than so selection's an obvious one when you were at Leinster contract situations is an obvious one so the question is how do you create that environment or culture where peer coaching is important and valued but done in the respectable and positive manner that it's meant yeah I think you add value to behaviors like that to to commitments like that by recognizing them Hmm. by by giving them value See, I, I think one of the problems is that if all you value are events that take place on the pitch, then okay. I, think, I think you're over-narrowing your, your ability to grow the group. Uh, I mean, one of the things, I mentioned Paul O'Connell earlier, I remember ringing Paul leading up to the Christmas camp, and we had a, a little 48-hour camp, 24 hours with a wider squad and then 24 hours with a, maybe a squad of 15 to 18 players. And uh, my first year, we had a, a Christmas dinner out at Carton House. And we had a, a little Chris Kindle and Rala gave out the gifts. And <laughs> it took forever because Rala had a story about everyone. And, yes, did. But it was, it was nice. And it, it was great to build a bit of glue as a team away from the pitch. But the following year, I'd spoken to Mick Carney, who was the manager. And we'd spoken uh, to Brother Kevin at the Capuchin Day Centre. And I rang Paul and I said, look, instead of having dinner out at uh, Carton House, why don't we go in and volunteer some of our time to the Capuchin Day Centre and do some volunteer work instead of feeding ourselves, try to feed others to understand, the, I, I suppose, the, the advantages we have in being well-fed and, and um, being able to, to be as talented as as they are as a group, 
uh, and I guess to understand that other people don't have this, those same advantages, mm. you, you wouldn't have believed it. So we got on the bus, said to the lads that we're going into town for dinner. So it wasn't a, wasn't a total lie. But uh, we arrived at the Capuchin Day Centre. The players got off the bus. They did not miss a beat. They went straight in. They weren't necessarily the most productive because the volunteers in there, they were wanted photos, um, you know, some players more than others, you know, obviously <laughs> Rob Carney was popular. And, um, I'm sure he was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I feel a bit sorry for Rob. It's not his fault, uh, but uh, he cops it a bit of it. Yeah. So uh, anyway, you talked about it, it must be great to see players improve. Uh, I tell you what is really great is seeing players uh, talk about values, talk about not winning all the time, but having really strong values as people. I, I was at the the halftime and watching the, in the RDS last year in the semi-final of the Pro uh, Pro 14, and they had a an advertisement. Um, I can't remember the product now, but Johnny was on the advertisement and he was talking about before I arrived it was all about winning at Leinster when I arrived it was all about values Mm. now they don't have to be totally separated Uh, I think really strong values give you a better chance of winning but uh, I I do think that we talk about growing players I think if you grow people you can get that genuine commitment to the team and coming back to the original question you can get that genuine peer coaching because people are invested in each other. And uh, I, I know a lot has been written about Project Aristotle that Google undertook with 180 high-performing teams. And they came up with five things because they couldn't get some, that, you know, they couldn't calculate an algorithm that, that gave you, right, this makes a sustainable high-performance team. But they narrowed it down to two words in the end, feeling valued. And I think whether you're coaching, whether you're teaching, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I know it's not my uh, phraseology, but it's something I, I certainly ascribe to. It's so interesting that you bring that up because that is exactly the same statement that Pat, Pat Lamb uses in his uh, coaching philosophy. And I only say that because there's a real trend in terms of how these elite level coaches like yourself are kind of model themselves on how people should feel valued. And I think it's something that I'm quite, I'm quite interested in and quite passionate about. And I wonder, we, we've talked about the growing of players and now I'd like to touch on the growing of a team because when you took over that Irish team, it, I always felt like we had world-class players, but we just, and Declan obviously went and won that Grand Slam and and, and we just needed to, to take that step forward. And there's no uh, arguing that under your tutelage they did because we ended up the number one team in the world and something that every Irish rugby fan super proud of. I think the question for you sits around when you took over that job as the Irish rugby head coach, what was your main vision or mission statement or what did you set yourself in terms of your targets and, and how did they change with the success that you had? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a funny question, Noel, because I, I didn't have any real vision. I didn't have any uh, aspiration. I, I obviously wanted them to be a winning team. I, I wanted them to be a happy team, a very connected team. But the first thing that I did is I asked them, you know, uh, and I asked them what other people would say about them. 
how do you think your opponents, what words or phrases would they use to, to summarize who you are? And I think the first, the first half dozen they put up were negative. You know, they'd finished fifth in the Six Nations. And I felt sorry for Declan because they had injuries. And, and we all know how that can derail a team. But they, they, they came up with a fair few negatives. And then we talked about, okay, well, how would you like to be perceived? Who, who would you like to be? And in between, uh, and it's, it's not original. I'd first seen it done by um, uh, an Australian outfit. Who, who did a great job of it. But in between how they're perceived and how they'd like to be perceived, we said, well, what are the things that we need to do every day? Uh, and I'm a massive, it's paraphrasing Aristotle, but um, you are what you repeatedly do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act. It is a habit. It's what you deliver every day. Um, and so we said, right, what can we commit to what can be the, the, the habits that we form as a group that allow us to, to become this, this team that would love people to see? And so they set a few parameters for themselves, their own actions, and then we shared the guardianship of that between the coaches and the leadership group and, and, and the players individually themselves because we always drove self-leadership. Um, you know, someone could cheat at home and have a burger, um, and, and no one would know really, but they would know. And so their, their commitment to it, and I'm not saying that you don't have cheat days. <laughs> Everyone's got to have cheat days. And to be honest, it always struck me that, um, some people like Ken Healy, uh, could just about eat anything. And he was still shredded and athletic. And he's uh, one of the lucky ones, Joe. Let me tell yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Whereas, um, even when Rossi behaved himself superbly, I think you know it was always an ongoing battle. But yeah, how valuable he was to us. Absolutely, was was unbelievably um, understated. People didn't realise how important he was. And. You know, since then, you know, guys like Ty Furlong have come along, Andrew Porter, those dynamic tight head props that are of a different kind of species and generation. Mm. What Rossi provided was was incredibly valuable. So also valuing, you know, the different aspects. Um, you, you talk about having a vision. Part of the vision is is making sure that everyone does feel valued so that, we might get Zebes showing his pure athletic talent and skill scoring in the corner. And we'd show that and would say, Zebes, that is phenomenal. That is exactly what we need from you because we want to keep his confidence high as well. But then we might go back two phases and show that the ball was actually exposed and could have been turned over, but for a fantastic clean out from Fergus McFadden. You know, it could have been anyone. Mm-hmm. Often it wasn't you know one of your clean out specialists like Rory Best who who was so good at that aspect of the game, but it was something that Ferg did uh, incredibly well and was understated in in outside the, the the environment, but inside the environment he was incredibly respected for what he brought to the team those those unseen contributions and when they were valued, I think it helped us all believe that everyone had a role to play and we were all 
very interdependent. Yeah, yeah, I think it's brilliant. I think it's putting a plan in place and allowing no ceiling for what's achievable. And that seems like what you put in place with driving those self-starter players who who can drive their own standards. And I think in an effort to round it up, you know, one of the one of the things I'm really interested to talk about with you is the sacrifices that you make as a coach, because as a young aspiring coach, I'm very too well aware of the sacrifices that guys like you and other top performing coaches for with their time that they allow for and I think if you if you'd allow us to ask that question you know what are some of the things that you reflect on that because I know you've stepped away from coaching for now and I think that that was down to wanting to spend more time with your family which we discussed earlier and I know your son Luke was diagnosed with epilepsy and that's part of the reason that you know you wanted to be more around your family one of the reasons that you wanted to be around your family more but maybe you could just kind of summarize the experiences that you have in sacrificing that family time to do what you do at the top level? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is I, I'd, be, I'd be pretty positive and, and try to bring a positive energy. So we never, ever talked about sacrifices. We talked about choices. Okay. And we all make choices. And, and they're often really positive choices. Um, you know, my, my family are very independent. Um, they are linguistically very uh, well able to speak French. Um, my daughter speaks uh, really good Spanish as well, a little bit of Italian. Those mm-hmm. opportunities in life, they didn't, they didn't come around uh, unless I, I did make the choice to commit to what I was doing because there are very few coaching jobs and, and you've got to work really hard to put yourself yeah. in a position to, to, to be offered a position in in those big teams so you know there is always a maybe a a quid pro quo in in that family time and and those opportunities that that they've they've had uh around the globe so um when tim went back and played a year in toulouse you know they they loved him there playing at scrum half Uh, my son because he he was fluent french fluent english uh they had um Roman Intermac, Intermac might play at 10 or it might be Tristan who was South African. So you had Roman who, who French speaking, Tristan who was English speaking. It didn't matter to Tim. Um, and, you know, he, from that perspective, it, it broadened his horizons a little bit as well. And, and you know, he, he had the chance maybe to chase a bit of uh, a couple of contracts that were offered at the time, but he had a year left of his university study. So he <laughs> got to get that done. Yeah, and, and, and it's important, I think, to keep that balance as well. And it's something that I'd always encourage with players as well. And even coaches. One of the luxuries, I, I remember when I came to Leinster and I got phoned by an agent um, who had given my, given my contact details to Leinster to, to make contact, although it kind of happened through Eastern Athaver anyway. But he said to me, look, you know, we, we can look after you, uh, negotiate uh, the best deal, and I said, look, I'm not going for the best deal. I'm going for the best experience, you know, uh, to get an opportunity. And they said, look, that's fine. But if it doesn't work out, we'll get you the best deal. Uh, you know, he went through guys who'd been sacked, you know, like mm. a lot of those teachers we talked about, like like Graham Henry and, and Warren Gatlin and those guys. And so they said, we'll get you a great deal. And I said, no, I, I don't need a great deal. I'll just go back to teaching. It's what I know. And so he said, oh, well, actually, there's not a lot we can do for you. But I, th- I think if you don't stay open-minded, if you channel yourself solely into that 
whole career of, of playing rugby, I, I don't even think it makes you the best player. I don't think it makes you the best coach. I think you've got to, you've got to have some interests. You've got to have some growth outside the game to keep growing inside the game. So for me, um, you know, I, I think uh, they were positive choices and, and made with positive support from, from my family. You know, I, I, I seriously, we would never have gone to France, but for my, my wife telling me, oh, you'll pick the language up, no problem. It was a problem, but I picked it up. <laughs> and, and, and it was the same coming here. I didn't have the self-confidence to, to come and take a big team like Leinster, but she said, look, it will be great. You'll be great at it. And she said, when are you going to find out if you don't find out now? You know, so uh, sometimes you, you need a really positive uh, support team around you. And, and some of that is people outside the family, but it has to be family orientated as well, because they are the ones who, who you miss the time with, uh, particularly weekends. You know, weekends are the busiest time. Mm. Uh, that's where you're away or that's where. And it's one of the things about Super Rugby that, was one of the reasons why we just decided to go to, to France because I, I might be away for three weeks on tour in South Africa or, or Australia and, and it's got worse, you know, with, with Argentina and Japan. And yeah. I, I think, you know, it's, it's suddenly got better with Super Rugby Aotearoa starting this weekend with yeah. unlimited crowds. It seems a, almost like a different world for us right now. But... I think it's a world that we can build to work toward uh, nine new cases in the, in the Republic yesterday. Uh, numbers coming down in, in Northern Ireland as well. I, I do think that there's been August 22 has been bandied around as, as the start of a, a couple of derbies before getting through and, and playing off the finish of the Pro 14. That would be fantastic. So I'm personally feeling starved of live rugby. Um, I love that to be the case. It's something we're all looking forward to getting back, live sport in general, but certainly getting back to the rugby, Joe. I'd just like to say a big thank you to you for jumping on. I really appreciate that you're getting particularly busy now that things are starting to get moving in Ireland. And thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time and having such an open, honest, insightful chat with us. No problem, Niall, and all the best with uh, those couple of years left at Worcester Warriors and, uh, and anything that happens that, uh, that goes into the coaching vein after that. Thank you very much, Joe. Cheers, Noel. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you listen on and let us know on Twitter and Instagram. We love to hear back from you. A big thanks to Joe for giving up his time to have a chat and we wish him all the best going forward. Also, a big thanks to VVS for their continued support and eyes to social media for ways to enter the free giveaway. But don't forget, subscribe on the website www.vvsleather.co.uk and receive a code which allows you to claim a free belt when you buy a new pair of boots. Thank you for your time. I'm Niall Annett and you've been listening to Wind Your Neck In.